It's good to see everybody again. Appreciate uh, Kevin filling in for me last week. A couple of things. I uh, want to recognize uh, uh, Bobby and Laura today. They uh, got married yesterday. <laughs> Beautiful uh, wedding ceremony and family, and I was honored to participate, and so we're glad to see them first Sunday of their married life in church, praising God. Amen. May it be so. Uh, I just want to add also to what uh, Kevin was saying about Youth Day, which is two weeks from today, if I have my calendar right. Two weeks from today, March the 4th, we're going after teenagers. Do you know a teenager? That's the day to bring them. I'm going to preach a sermon geared to teenagers, and it's going to be the message that today's teenager needs to hear. It's a foundational truth. That if you embrace it, it will change everything you think and protect you from a false worldview. That's two weeks from the day, teenagers. We're going to, um, we're, we're going to, we love children and teenagers. That's we're geared to them. Amen. But March 4th, I want to challenge our young people to bring teenagers. The, the teenager who brings the most visitors, the most friends that Sunday, we're going to give you a $100 gift card, a $100 Visa card. And if uh, two of you tie, we'll give both of, both of you. And uh, we'll, I'm, we're going, I'm going to make sure that happens. I have to sell my car, but it's okay. I'm going to make it happen. And, uh, and then after the service that day, we've got, we're going to uh, uh, provide pizza for all the teenagers, and we'll have an announcement for them coming up of another event. And so March 4th, two weeks from the day, Teenage Sunday or Youth Day, whatever you want to call it. But keep it in mind and, and help us to reach young people. Paul said, do the work of an evangelist and we're going to be working over these next two weeks to make sure we get a bunch of teens in here and Kevin uh, we're, I want you to rock it out that Sunday make it happen make the older people uncomfortable <laughs> which you usually do anyway but it's okay All right, we have been in the book of Acts, and I'm, these first few chapters of Acts have just uh, caught my heart, and they're so packed full of truth, and I've appreciated the questions and the comments. Uh, some of you have interacted with me and on some of the things that we're sharing, and the interest is, is encouraging, and I appreciate it. 
And uh, we've got more to come. I want to begin with one verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or approved or proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This, is, this section is part of Peter's sermon. Uh, began up in uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, quoting the book of Joel. And uh, the whole previous section is a quote from Joel. And, um, and if, you, if you didn't, if you weren't here for that message, there's some CDs out there I checked just before I came in, but, but get those message, most messages on the quote from Joel and what Peter is explaining to him and how he's applying it. It's on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish festival. And so you had tens of thousands of Jews from all over the world who would gather in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up in the midst of them and begins to preach to the people of Israel. Verse 22 again. Men of Israel, hear these words. And he uses a word there. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, is the English Standard Version. He uses a word which was used in a law court. The court system. And it means to bring in a proof of something. You're proving someone guilty or not guilty. So you, you bring evidence. And that's the word he uses there. Jesus of Nazareth was a, was a man attested. That is, there was evidence on who he was and what he said was true and his legitimacy. And what what, are, what is this evidence that Peter then produces that God actually produced? But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, and going through verse 32, there are three powerful evidences that just cannot be denied. And I want to give those to you this morning. What are these evidences? Acts 2.22. The first one is in the verse we read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The first evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, was the miracles that God did through him. You can't pick up the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without almost immediately just 
there's story after story of miracles. Matthew 8, 13, Jesus healed a centurion's servant. Just spoke the word, didn't even go to his house. Just spoke it from a distance. Matthew 8, 23, he calms a storm. Spoke the word and the nature is not a problem for Jesus. Matthew 9, 6, he heals a paralytic and then forgives his sins. Guilt is not a problem for Jesus. Matthew 9, 25, he attends a funeral and raises a little girl from the dead. Gives her back to her parents. Death is not a problem for Jesus. In Matthew 9.30, He restored sight to two blind men. Darkness is not a problem to Jesus. And you can go on and on and how that every situation that Jesus confronted, He healed it, He blessed it, He turned it, He reversed a curse, He healed the sick, raised the dead... The, there were miracles after... I gave you miracles from two chapters. Two chapters. John 21, 25 put it like this. There are many other things Jesus did. And if every one of them was written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He did so many good things, so many miracles, that you couldn't write them all down. Three and a half to four years of just walking around helping, healing people. And let me add this. Did you notice um, that last phrase, you yourselves know this? That is, the, the, the first century Israel knew exactly who Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth, what He claimed to be, what He did, the stories, the narratives were everywhere. And I say that, I point it out because sometimes you will hear someone say that there's no evidence that Jesus ever existed. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's a half a dozen historians that I looked at this week that give that mention the name of Jesus who were in that time frame, first century. One of them, a Roman historian who is called one of the best historians of Rome, was a man named Tacitus. He was hostile to Christianity. And he was a judge and he would persecute them. Well, a fire had broken out in Rome and Nero, the emperor, was blaming the Christians for it when he probably said it himself. He wanted some new buildings, so he just set the old ones on fire to get rid of them. And Tacitus, who lived about 30, 40 maybe 50 A.D., writes this in his history of Rome. He writes, The emperor's efforts could not end the scandalous belief 
that the fire was set by his own hand. Therefore, Emperor Nero substituted as the culprits a crowd called the Christians. The founder, Christ, had been executed under Pontius Pilate. But the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, but spread to Rome itself. Now that is a first century historian who is hostile to Christians. He called it a a deadly superstition. But in so doing, he names the name of Christ as a historical figure, tells exactly how he died under Pontius Pilate by by execution of Rome, that would be crucifixion, and how that it erupted again, day of Pentecost, after his resurrection. Now that is by one of the world's best historians, according to the historian. Now, and, and, and I'll add this. He, he places one named Christ in history and under Pilate and names his death. So don't let somebody tell you that there's no evidence Jesus ever lived. That's just not true. But here's the thing I wanted to point out to you. Of all the people who would deny Jesus were the Jews, the rabbis. And from the first century on, though they reject him as Messiah, no rabbi ever argues he never existed. (laughs) That's why Peter says, look, he lived in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus of Nazareth. You rejected him, but you knew that he lived. So the first argument, the first proof that Peter brings forth here is Acts 2.22, the miracles of Jesus in the first century. Can't get away from it. By the way, the Jews... Uh, through the history would say yes he lived and yes he did miracles but he did it by the power of Satan he was a charlatan a second proof that Peter brings forth is in verse 23 showing proofs that Jesus is who he said he was verse 23 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed, you crucified, that's the Jews, and killed by the hands of lawless men, that's the Roman soldiers. But verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs or the travail of death. The second argument for the or proof of Jesus is in his resurrection. You have to remember that not even the disciples believed in his death and resurrection until after he was resurrected. And then he came to them. In Luke 24, he walked down the road with them and talked with them. In John 21, he showed up where they were fishing and and they cooked some fish and he ate with them after his resurrection. 
in Acts chapter 1, he stayed with the disciples for 40 days and taught them from the Old Testament about the kingdom of God. There are 12 different appearances in the New Testament showing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This includes his brother James, who was not a believer. But 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to James and all the apostles, and James was converted after the resurrected Christ appeared to him and became the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says he appeared to more than 500 at one time, Paul says. The Corinthians were denying resurrection. And Paul says, how can you do that? Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. Paul says, when he wrote that, most of them were still alive. He said, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection, or Jesus' resurrection, then go and ask the people who saw him. There's one, one appearance that was 500 people. Talk to some of them. Most of them are still alive. You can go and Call them up. Text them. Hey, I wanted to... This is actually a little bit uh, beside the point, but I did want to point this out. In verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The pangs or the pains is the Greek word travail, a woman's labor pains. It's very specific. It's used, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains on a woman with child. That's the word used here. Loosing the labor pains of death. Think about this. Death when you're old or sometimes young and you're sick and you're dying those are labor pains and you're about to be born all over again you know when you're in the womb you are comfortable I mean I'm assuming most of us were it's safe and don't need anything don't have to go to work don't have any responsibilities. It's, it's uh, comfortable. You can't imagine a life outside of that womb. Right? And then comes labor pains. And you're squeezed and pushed and, and poked until finally you emerge into a whole new world. And you realize, wow, I can see and touch and love and be loved and I can take in milk and I can cry out loud and I can disturb the adults all night long. And you wonder, I'm so glad I'm out of there now. That is the way it is with death. It will cause us to emerge into another life. And just as nobody here this morning would ever think, oh, I wish I was back in the womb. 
We never think that. Our worst days. So when we are past the transition from death into life, we will never want to go back to the restrictions of this life again. And that's what is a description of Jesus' death. The labor pains of death brought him forth into a new life. Couldn't hold him. So here the resurrection of Christ is a proof that Jesus is who he said he was. And God is not done yet. He produces, or Peter is not done yet, he produces a third proof. Beginning in verse 25. Giving evidences, the proofs, evidence that, that Jesus is who he said he was. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me at my right hand that I might not be shaken. So my heart was glad and tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon me to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now what Peter does here is he's addressing these Jewish men. They all knew of David who wrote the Psalms. And he says, listen to what David says. So the third proof is prophecy. How David predicted the Messiah and even his resurrection. Now how does he apply this? He said, look at verse 29. He says, now brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, verse 29, that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Uh, One of the most well-known places to visit in Jerusalem is the tomb of David. It's it's never been uh, torn down. Uh, Even when Nehemiah came back from the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah 3.16, it says they, they built... Uh, across from the tomb of David. So the tomb of David has been there. It was there in uh, Peter's day. David died a thousand years ago. In fact, let me look at some of these. This is a picture on the tomb of David. This is outside the tomb of David. Actually, a Christian church is built over the top of it uh, uh, before the Jews came back. This is inside the tomb of David. It's one of the most uh, uh, holy places in Israel. And uh, you can visit it for $100. Uh, if actually, Christians and Jews fight over who can go in there. Um, and my thought was, <laughs> why fight over a corpse? And Peter says, look at the tomb of David. It's right over there. It's a historical monument. So here's the question. How does he make this fit? He says, David wrote these words, verse 27, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. But David's tomb is right there. He's been dead for a thousand years. So how could he say, You will not let your Holy One see corruption? And Peter's point is, He wasn't speaking of himself. 
Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, knowing God swore with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. David, as a prophet, spoke of how one day, even though he would die, his flesh would not be corrupt. He would not decay as a corpse. And Peter says, that can't be true of David because his tomb is right there. It's been there for a thousand years. So of whom is he speaking? And Peter says, he was speaking of the Messiah, Christ Jesus of Nazareth, who when he was crucified, he was raised up. His body did not see any decay. Therefore, Peter says, the prophets, the prophet David here, spoke accurately of this Jesus. So the proofs are the miracles testify to who Jesus is. Not only the miracles, but the resurrection testifies to who Jesus is. And not only that, but the prophecies and the Old Testament testifies to who Jesus is. I want you all to know that you, you, you who've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are on solid ground. He is the Savior of the world. He is the way to the Father. He is the path to heaven. And you can rest assured that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And we praise Him for that kind of confidence. I want to boost your faith in Jesus today and show you that you're on a foundation that will never be taken away. Because of the miracles... Peter said, you all know those miracles. You know his story. Because of the resurrection, affirmed by many still alive, Peter would say. And because of the prophecies, Peter says, we preach to you, Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian today, I want to know why. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming it cannot be refuted. Confront that truth and say yes to Christ even this hour. Kevin, you come and receive our offering this morning and, and as we pray together, I hope that you will join me in praying to the Father through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I praise you today that the Lord Jesus Christ has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be our Savior. And I'm glad to have Him as our Savior. So, so held up and proven by you through the miracles and through the resurrection and through the prophecies. We praise your name for him. And we pray that for those who may not be Christians today, 
May they put their faith in Jesus and find in Him all that they look to and all they need. In His name we ask these things. Amen.